This is Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment. Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. IATP is celebrating 25 years of working for fair and sustainable food, farm, and trade systems. This edition of Radio Sustain is for June 2011. I'm Andrew Rinaldo at IATP in Minneapolis. In today's episode, we talk with IATP's Steve Supan about the use of nanotechnology, its increasing prevalence in products and food, and why its huge potential may be causing regulatory paralysis in the U.S. and abroad. But first, we track down Mindy Schneider, who is currently living in Chengdu, a city in the Sichuan province of southwest China. In a new IATP report, Mindy examines the industrial transformation of the massive pork industry in China and the consequences, both for China and globally, of how the largest pork producer in the world chooses to feed its pigs. The way that I got interested in this particular topic of studying the pork industry in China, a few years ago, I was looking into global meat and livestock markets for research, and I found this graph that really captured my attention. It was a graph that showed world meat production by category over about the past 50 years. And the thing that I found so fascinating on the graph was the line for pork. So starting in 1979. Pork jumped out ahead of beef as the most produced meat in the world, and just kept trending up and up and up over the past 30 years. So as I started looking into this, I soon found that the reason for this trend was quite simply China, and also that the rise in worldwide pork production corresponds to different policies and changes in the markets in China. Including liberalizing their agricultural markets and industrializing their pork production, so it became clear that this was an industry that was important not just in China but also internationally, and for me was an ideal case to study. You said it sort of began in 1978. What accounted for this change in China's policies to increasingly liberalize and industrialize production of pork? Well, in 1978 was the so-called reforms for opening. That were a set of reforms that Deng Xiaoping initiated at that time, and that's kind of the starting point of China's move towards becoming a more market economy. Before that, it was a state-planned economy, and in 1978 they changed course. In agriculture, that meant that. Agriculture was decollectivized, and instead, a system called the household responsibility system was initiated. And the major trends that have implications for the industrialization of agriculture are that there was private ownership became to be allowed, markets were liberalized away from state control, and imports were allowed in ways that they hadn't been before. There was also foreign direct investment was allowed, and so everything started changing very quickly. And at the same time, you see the industrialization of agriculture is part of、uh, these trends that started in 1978. What are the consequences of these increased imports of industrially produced corn and soy, both in China and internationally? China today is the largest importer of soybeans in the world. In 2010, they imported about 58% of all the soybeans in the world. The main reason that they do that is to produce feed to feed pigs, especially in industrial farming systems. Some of the implications of 
these changes both in feed and in livestock production, there's massive environmental implications. Last year, the central authorities released the first ever national pollution census in China, and the most alarming finding from that report was that agriculture is more polluting in China today than industry. And, of course, pesticide runoff from crop fields into water is a big part of that story. But I think the most important contribution is manure. So in 2008, there was 4.8 billion tons of manure produced in China. And much of this is from industrial livestock operations. So manure has changed being a valuable resource to a waste management problem that has to be dealt with and a problem that's polluting a lot of the waters. There's also other environmental implications like greenhouse gas emissions. We know that greenhouse gas emissions increase with more industrial livestock production, for instance. There's also a mass loss of genetic diversity both in livestock breeds and in crops like soybeans. We're seeing antibiotic resistant disease-causing bacteria. Recently, there was a study in China that found these bacteria in the soils around of industrial pig operations. And this has implications, of course, for human health as well. There's a number of health and diet-related implications. For one thing, some of these, quote-unquote, diseases of affluence are on the rise in China. So we have things like type 2 diabetes coming. We have things like coronary heart disease, obesity, and a range of cancer that are linked to meat becoming more central in Chinese diets. And, of course, it isn't just meat. It's also a number of other diet-related changes. But meat is certainly a key part of it. So there was a study in 2008 that showed that one in every four adults and about 20% of children under the age of seven are considered overweight in China today. And this is just another of these mass changes that has taken place over the past 30 years and is related to changes in agriculture. Could you tell us a little bit about the rural-urban split here? What are the issues affecting those populations in particular? In China, there is currently mass movement of people from rural areas to urban centers. By some estimations, there's between 240 and 250 million migrant workers. And these people constitute what can be called a floating population because they live and are legal residents of rural areas, but they work in urban centers. That's part of the rural-urban split that's happening, and it's been called the largest migration in human history because it's occurring on such a massive scale. There's income inequality between rural and urban areas. I think the current ratio is somewhere around 3.3 to 1 of urban to rural income. So income inequality and these disparities are key issues both for policymakers and for the people living in that inequality. What is the extent of transnational agribusiness corporations' involvement? Part and parcel to industrialization of the livestock industry and the pig industry is the emergence and the consequent uh, industrialization of a feed industry in China. Before 1975, there was no feed industry to speak of in China because farmers were feeding their animals on locally occurring feedstuffs and there wasn't grains being used to be processed into animal feed. This is another thing that's changed dramatically over the past 30 years, and the key part of this story is soybeans. So China is now the largest soybean importer in the world, and they import whole soybeans, mostly from Brazil and from the United States, 
and those beans are crushed domestically. The two products of soybean crushing, on the one hand, are soybean meal, which is used for livestock feed, and on the other hand is soybean oil, which can be used for cooking. Over the past 30 years, there, a domestic feed industry has sprung up with a number of domestic crushers. But in 2004, there was a mass crusher default in China that you can read the specifics about in the report. But as a result of these crusher defaults, many, many domestic crushers went out of business, and their only recourse was to sell their businesses, mostly to foreign investors. So at that time, the group ABCD, or Archer Daniels Midland, Bunge, Cargill, and Dreyfus, were among the biggest buyers of Chinese crushers. There's also Singapore-based Wilmar was also an important buyer. But by some estimates today, following the crusher defaults, transnational agribusiness corporations now own about 80% of soy crushing in China and also own about 60% of the soy oil refineries. So this is quite unique to have some particular sector in China. And there's, in fact, moves now to control and to sort of cool down the foreign ownership in this sector. But it remains to be seen kind of how this will work and what this will mean for domestic crushers. If China hopes to improve the situation, what are some things you see as possible solutions to these issues environmentally and socially? The path that China is on is towards further industrialization of agriculture and of pig farming to supply ever-increasing amounts of pork. But as the crises of industrial agriculture emerge here in China, as they have in other places around the world, this signals a real need and a real opportunity to consider other sort of ways forward. I think it's a mistake to think of development in general and livestock and agricultural development in particular as sort of a one-size-fits-all kind of proposition. And I mean that both in terms of not just copying an entire system, like the industrial system that's used in the United States, and also not just supporting one particular scale of production to address all the needs of all the people in the country. So I think in addition to enforcing environmental regulations for livestock farms, in addition to reining in the overconsumption of meat in some consumer segments in China, I think there also needs to be policies that support smallholder farmers and locally based agricultural production. One way to do this is to redirect subsidies and research and extension funds away from industrial production and towards local food systems and to farmer organizations. And also I think we need to see research and support for alternate feed sources to address the problems associated with massive feed grain imports. There's been several studies that have come out in the past few years that attest to the productivity and the sustainability of smallholder systems. And probably the most well-known is the IAASTD, which is the International Assessment of Agricultural Knowledge, Science, and Technology for Development. Um, and these reports... They urge governments to support smallholder systems. So my overall recommendation would be to support diverse scales and forms of production, including smallholder systems. Find Mindy's new report, Feeding China's Pigs, on IATP.org.
In May 2010, we spoke with IATP's Steve Supan about nanotechnology applications and why the regulatory framework for them just wasn't up to par. Now, over a year later, we touch base again and find that, despite the industry's rapid growth, regulation and testing of nanotech applications are still lacking. Exactly how widespread is nanotechnology and how widespread is it in food and agriculture applications? The companies that do research and development in nanotechnology do so with concern about their brand name products. And so some companies will advertise that they're using nanotechnology. And on the basis of that kind of self-claim use of nanotechnology, the Project for Emerging Nanotechnologies of the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars in in Washington, D.C. has a a product registry of about 1,300 consumer products that incorporate engineered nanomaterials. But in addition to that, you have inputs to products, both agricultural and non-agricultural, and there are not very good estimates of how much of those materials are produced. So in the study that I've just written, one research team did a survey of nanomaterial manufacturers and found that most of them were very uncooperative. They wouldn't respond to a survey even if there were guarantees of confidentiality. So on the basis of some private databases, they're their best guess, for example, was that the production of nano titanium dioxide in the United States ranged somewhere between seven and 3,800 tons a year. And nano titanium dioxide is perhaps the most frequently used nanomaterial. It's used to refract ultraviolet light, for example, in sunscreen. Nano silver, the estimated production was between 2.8 and 20 tons a year. So You know, really there's a great deal more uncertainty than certainty about the extent of production of the nanomaterials. And that's just in the United States. I mean, worldwide, it's estimated that there are over 2,000 companies producing nanomaterials or incorporating nanomaterials into consumer products. And this is according to a a survey done by uh, NanoWork, W-E-R-K, which is kind of an industry database. The, the assumption is here that basically we have both products that have been commercialized and nanomaterials that have been commercialized without any regulation. Now, in food and agriculture, there's perhaps even less knowledge. There was a survey done in 2006 by the Woodrow Wilson Center, which looked at all the U.S. federal databases. What was the U.S. government funding in the way of agra and food nanotechnology projects. And at that time, there were about 160 projects. And these were, you know, ranged from edible nanocoatings for fruits and vegetables to uh, prevent spoilage and, and retain water. There were projects to basically put biosensors into fields to try to detect pathogens from uncomposted manure runoff. A whole kind of array of projects, but all of the, uh, the information such that any information that the um, Environmental Protection Agency or the U.S. Department of Agriculture or the Food and Drug Administration has is considered confidential business information. So it's really hard to kind of um, reconstruct the extent of agri and food nanotechnology. 
So beyond that lack of clarity about how widespread this is or perhaps who's using it or how, how often it's incorporated into consumer products, what are some other reasons for regulation paralysis? In terms of the United States, and I, and I think this applies generally, the investments of the federal government in nanotechnology are around $17 billion. That's across various federal agencies that are coordinated by the National Nanotechnology Initiative. Once you've put that much money into the development of technology and co-financing projects then with private companies, the assumption is if you do too much investigation, that is the company's assumption, is if you do too much investigation into the environmental health and safety effects of, of nanomaterials in the environment and in human health, that those investments could be impeded or, or, or you might even have product development cancellation. So there's definitely that degree of paralysis. There's a huge hope among the members of Congress in particular that nanotechnology will foster the next wave of job creation, that there will be a whole, you know, whole new industries that will be built around nanotechnology there are kind of consultancy projections that talk about uh, a $3 trillion market in nanotechnology and nanomaterials by 2020 or 2025. How they arrive at these estimates, I have no idea. But particularly in the use of nanomaterials and semiconductors for computers and other electrical devices, they see you know a, a huge market. Whether the manufacturing of those nanomaterials is done here or is offshore to jurisdictions with no environmental or, or public health regulation at all, that too is confidential business information. Even the location of the manufacturing facilities is confidential. Are there any frameworks that you see as viable in moving ahead on getting some of this stuff under regulation, or is that something that's in complete need? The official position of the Food and Drug Administration is that the Federal Food and Drug Cosmetics Act is an adequate regulatory framework, that you don't have to have anything specific for nanotechnology. Now, practically speaking, that underlying legislation is going to have to be amended simply because the nature of nanotechnology is such that the standard regulatory tools that the legislation frames are not really applicable to nanotech. The size of the materials, the mass of the materials, is too small in individual product applications to be tested in the traditional way. So there are some proposals for new ways of measuring the nanoparticles in consumer products, but you would have to change kind of the regulatory framework to do that, and then you would have to be able to invest in testing and inspection tools. The estimate, for example, of buying one electronic tunneling uh, microscope is about $2 million a piece. And so if you were going to equip uh, a testing lab, especially at the port of entry and in, for imports, you know, then you'd have to train people. And it would be an expense. And unfortunately, right now, the anti-tax fever that is you know, gripping uh, much of official Washington prevents those kind of investments at the same time that the Grocery Manufacturers Association and other industry associations are demanding ever more imports. So this is a really big, big problem. Now, on the side of environmental health, I think there's widespread recognition that the Toxic Substance Control Act has been a failure. There have been more than 80,000 chemicals that have been developed since 1967 when the act went into effect. 
and the Environmental Protection Agency has tested fewer than, than 200 of them. So the European REACH legislation on toxic substances is often seen as a model for uh, how the U.S. Toxic Substance Control Act should be revised. And the Europeans are actually investing money to use nanotechnology as a testing tool to evaluate uh, chemical interactions. And that has a fair amount of promise. It's not a tool that would ever be consumed. I mean, it's, it's something for testing. And I think there, you know, nanotechnology has a, a, a lot of promise. and There's a lot of reason to invest in it. But why you would put nanosilver into ice cream or nanosilica into ice cream to give it to give you that full mouthy feel without more calories is to me seems a trivial use of the technology. Find all of IATP's nanotechnology work at IATP.org. Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at IATP.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. Radio Sustain's engineer is Patrick Sy. The music on the program was Tall Fiddler by Deo, Shutterbug by Big Boy, and Mask on the Mantle by Brass Messengers. I'm Andrew Ranallo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.